Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your presence with us uh, today. Thank you for your Holy Spirit uh, within us and around us and through us and for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are uh, present to us and and present in us and present through us. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you'd come um, and just really enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would uh, transform our minds, that you'd renew us uh, in your word. That, Father, we would know exactly what your, your good and perfect will is, uh, that we'd be able to follow you, that we'd be able to be faithful to you, that we'd be obedient to you. Just come, Holy Spirit, and just challenge us, transform us, conform us into the image of the Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, right, so, so today I want to carry on uh, what, what Steve's been uh, preaching on, uh, kind of this Jesus is Lord, what kingdom are we of? And, and I've really loved... Um, the challenge that kind of Steve's laid down to us because uh, what, what was his quote? It was it's about your choices are determined by where you believe you are from and that's a really key thing and, and it's really really true like what we uh, where we think ourselves to be from what we perceive of the world that, that dictates our choices that dictates how we live and move and have our being in this world and really what I want to do is just want to pick up on that idea and I just really want to press it. I really want to just push into that and just really challenge us. Uh, I love that Steve uh, has been challenging us week on week about like our conduct. You know, that was uh, week one. He really kind of pushed to that. And I really want to push it how we think. Okay. And I think this is, uh, for me, this is like really something that I, I've really challenged myself. Um, and what I want to look at is like our, our assumptions about how life and the world and reality. So small, small stuff. Um, so I have these heroes. I've been listening to a lot of audio books when I've been uh, running, and I really love uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I've just discovered G.K. Chesterton. He's got his own kind of detective, quirky detective called Father Brown. He's a, he's a Catholic priest that just has this quirky way of solving crimes. Um, and I've really loved listening to that. And what I kind of was like, why do I love these? Is it is it the mystery? Um, and I'm like, I'm not that I'm not that fussy about mysteries particularly. But what it is is that Sherlock Holmes and Father Brown both have this this strange way of viewing the world that is completely different to everybody else around them. So uh, when they come on a crime scene or, or when something's happened, everybody else will make assumptions about what's gone on. And it's just that Sherlock Holmes or Father Brown make a different set of assumptions. And so they see everything differently. And so they will pick out the most unlikely of people as being the criminal or the reasons why. And I love that because in some senses we know this idea is true in terms of we all make assumptions about how the world works and what's important and how we should live and move and have our being. But there are always those exceptions, and it's funny that it's the exceptions that are the things that catch the eye. The, the exceptions to the normal assumptions are the ones that get films made out about them. Okay, uh, We've got The Matrix, which kind of challenges all of our assumptions. One of my other favourites, one of my other heroes, is Tolkien. Uh, you probably all know this by now, but I love Tolkien, and I love uh, Lord of the Rings, and I, and I love The Hobbit. And 
Previously, I loved it because, you know, it's a pretty epic adventure. Mm. But now I've started reading it, um, and now, now I'm a bit older, and, and I've got a different interests and a different way of viewing the world, and, you know, kind of just reading just tons of theology. That's kind of infiltrated my appreciation of Tolkien. And I've realised that Tolkien just undercuts all of our assumptions about good and evil, about what wins. Like, it's probably struck all you guys immediately, but the, the, the central kind of view of the world in all of Tolkien's stuff, in, in The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings, is told from the most unlikely of perspectives. It's not told from the powerful wizard's perspective. It's not told from the powerful warrior's perspective. It's told from the hobbit's perspective. The smallest, the least, the least likely. And somehow, and the fa- he fails, deliberately fails. You know, Frodo doesn't succeed at the end. He fails, and it's his failure that leads to success. And, and we'll watch the film or read the book and, you know, we'll cheer at the right places because deep down we know that that's actually how life is. You know, in Ecclesiastes it says, the race is not always to the swift, the battle not always to the strong, but chance happens to all. You know, it's, it's this funny thing where we, we think there are set rules, there are, we think there are set assumptions about the world we live in, and yet we constantly stumble over those outliers, those weird things. And I want to suggest that, that it's actually those outliers, those weird things, that that's, that's an indication, that's an inkling of what true reality is like. Uh, Tolkien says this, I love it. Um, it, it, it. Well, Gandalf says this. Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. That sounds cute. But let's really press that idea. Because actually, in the church, even... A lot of what we do is seeking after power, right? I want to be more powerful so I can have more influence and more impact. Let's seek the power. And we can dress it up and say, we're seeking the power holder, not the power. But really what we want is power. We want to be able to do something. And power could look uh, in a lot of different ways. I want a mega church because more people means more power. It means more reach. It means more impact. So I want the power of numbers. Um, in my church, I want successful people, so I'm going to evangelise politicians and celebrities because their reach is bigger, their influence is bigger, more power. Or we're going to whip ourselves up into some sort of charismatic frenzy because more spirit means more power. And we see this undercurrent. And Gandalf says this other great thing. Believe, you know, Frodo offers him the ring. Believe me, Frodo, I would want to use the power to do great good. But through me, it would wield some evil. And you see the people that hunt after power, like Boromir. He wants it. He's got a good reason. He's got a good heart. It is by my, the blood of my people that your lands are kept free. We would, I would use the power against the enemy. And we see that throughout Lord of the Rings, and this is one of the great things in the film, is that time and again, Frodo the Muppet offers the ring to so many people. He offers it to Gandalf and Gandalf refuses. He offers it to Galadriel and she warns him instead of a, instead of a, a great evil master you would have a beautiful queen terrible as the dawn and she refuses it and she says I will pass 
into the West. He offers it to Aragorn, and Aragorn says, I'd, I'd have went, gone with you into the fires of Mount Doom itself. I would have died to protect you. And he, oh, you know, yeah, there's that cool moment where he kind of closes Frodo's hand over the ring and he goes and attacks like about a thousand orcs on his own, which is it's a great time for everybody right there. And Boromir is the one that reaches out for it and tries to seize it, and Boromir fails. It, no matter how good his heart is, but there's assumptions about power and what happens. Uh, one of my other heroes is Karl Barth. Now, you might not know much about Karl Barth, but Karl Barth, in the early 19th century, he, he transformed theology. And it sounds really daft to say it, but he transformed theology by just saying everything, everything has to do with Jesus. And he pushed it as far as that would go. He took the idea that everything needs Christ at his centre, else it is nothing. And it revolutionised theology. And it's amazing. Let me just read this, this one quote that I read the other day, which is just mind-blowing. If I can find it. It's on my phone somewhere. On Golgotha, everything was accomplished. With this sovereign act, is everything, really everything, which stands against us, beaten down. By it is dissolved every obligation we owe to the God of this world, really every one. Every, really every, anxiety which we could have in this world was removed in him. He, Jesus Christ, stands as victor over our sins of yesterday, today and tomorrow, over the hosts of temptation, over the horror of death and hell. And with this sovereign act there is erected the kingdom in which we may already, here and now, be children of the Father because of his eternal Son. Um, you know, sometimes we think of theologians with... You know, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics in 31 volumes is dry and dusty. But actually, he just takes how all of the thinking, and he says we cannot relativise it to, like, Freudian sexuality. We cannot say it's due to the Enlightenment or, so, or any of all these great philosophers. He said the central focus, the axis around everything is Jesus Christ. And he pushed that. And he reorientated the assumptions of theology, the assumptions about God, and he grounded it in Jesus Christ. And now we have these things like Brad Jerzak or Brian Zahn talking about a more Christ-like God. But Karl Barth started that, and it's phenomenal. So, just readdressing these assumptions. And I love the fact that Trish referred to Galatians, that, that mighty uh, verse, Galatians 2.20, about, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who liveth in me. Paul is relentless in his theology even to the point of fighting with James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, to say, you've got it wrong. The focus of our theology is Jesus Christ. Our orientation towards God is in Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. And that's what the letter of Galatians is all about, and I'm going to come on to that in a bit. So I want to ask this question. If Jesus is Lord, then how does that really change things? If Jesus is really Lord for us, if Jesus is really Lord over all creation... What does that mean? Do we really believe that? Because where we believe we are from shapes our choices and shapes our actions. What are the implications for how we live, move and have our being? How does that change our assumptions about what life is? How does that change the way we see the systems, the arrangements that we live within? And I'm, I'm kind of using that very kind of abstract language as well, very deliberately. Kind of uh, the systems we, we can acknowledge we live in loads of overlapping systems. So there's um, 
there's there's society systems of of wealth or um, you know the stratification. So are you, are you middle class or upper class or, or whatever. We live in political systems. We live in economic systems. We we live in social uh, interaction groups. We we live in religious systems. Um, we live in all sorts of uh, like political correctness type systems around orientation or gender or, or ethnicity. All of these systems that we live within. If Jesus is Lord, what does that do to all of our assumptions about all of those things? Because it should impact all of those things. <clears throat> I want to suggest that allegiance to Christ supersedes and transcends all of the allegiances that we have, whether, we, whether they're conscious allegiances. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty middle class. I didn't choose to be. That's just where I find myself on the ladder of things. Um, how does Jesus being Lord shape my assumptions about life, shape how I am related to that position in society. What does that mean I do with that position in society? Um, Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, reconfigures the world. It rebuilds the cosmos from the ground up. And it's just that we, we do not see it. It relativizes all of the systems of value. For example, if you are a celebrity... You probably accrue more social value than a nobody. If a celebrity walked in through that door now, and Mick walked in through that door now, we'd probably be a bit like, oh, it's a celebrity. About the celebrity, not Mick. And we'd probably be like, all right, Mick, if Mick walked through the door. There's a distinction in how we treat people. And I want to suggest that Jesus Christ reconfigures all of those things. But what I want to say is this, that it's not instantaneous, that the challenge today isn't that we'd have some (gasps) epiphany and our thinking would be immediately changed. And I don't think that that's what Jesus anticipates throughout the whole Gospels, throughout the New Testament. He says, I'm going to send you the spirit that is going to lead you into all truth. It's not like, boom, Jesus is here. We have all truth. It's like, guys, you know what? I've been involved with humanity since the beginning and you still ain't got it yet. You probably need a little bit of leading through and it's a bit of a journey of discovery for you guys. So I'm sending you my spirit to lead you through this. And our assumptions get challenged and changed over time. It's a following. It's a, a being a disciple. The language that Jesus uses isn't instantaneous success. Be a follower, be a disciple, be a disciple, learn from me. Take upon yourself my yoke, for it is easy. It's it's a being with, it's a relationship, it's a faithfulness, it's an obedience, it's a long-term thing. <clears throat> and over time, like our thoughts and our thinking patterns and the way we perceive things gets unpicked gently and neatly, oftentimes, but sometimes quite viciously <laughs> and aggressively. <clears throat> It's funny, we were talking on the, uh, the Bible app about Matthew 5, and, and Matt uh, made a comment about kind of the last section, and about it, how it's all about this, this perfect love of God. And that's really where we get to at the end of the day, that that is the measure of perfection. That is the measure of attaining to something. The indiscriminate love of God. There's that song that we sing as well. I um, can't remember off the top of my head. That's, that's your job, mate. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. Right, so with that little introduction, 
Um, can we watch this clip just to give you a flavour? You may have to come close, I'm not sure. We've all seen The Matrix, right? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth. It is everywhere. It's pervasive and yet you do not see it. All of the assumptions, all of the arrangements, all of the systematic things that go into organising the world is, is there always. And we're immersed in it. We're baptised in it. And, and, and Morpheus is there to tell Neo the truth and invite him to a new way of viewing reality. <clears throat> okay, so just hang on to that. That's kind of, to, to be honest, I should have just dispensed with my first 15 minutes and just showed that, shouldn't I? Um, okay, so John 18 then. This is where Steve's been uh, working from. I just want to make a few quick observations. And by quick, I mean really slow. So I'll just read it. Um, notice who, who is in play. Who are the characters in play here? So Pilate went back to the Praetorium and spoke to Jesus. So Pilate is the representative of the empire of the day. So this is a meeting of two heads of state, essentially. So Pilate went back to the Praetorium. So the Praetorium is the place of Pilate's power. That's where his guards are stationed, his elite Legion, the station in the Praetorium. That's his place of power, and that's where Jesus finds himself. So Jesus finds himself in the midst of the power of the empire of the day. So Pilate went back to the Praetorium and spoke to Jesus and said, Are you king of the Jews? And so this isn't a light statement for Pilate to be making, because kings get treated differently to regular people. Okay, nations um, work through kings. Nations work through heads of state. They, they dialogue, they, they discuss. Other people get crushed by the might of nations. One only has to look at American foreign policy. They will treat with Vladimir Putin. They will assassinate some random terrorist in Afghanistan with a drone strike. 
Okay, that's how power works. Power respects other power. Power will crush everything else. Are you king of the Jews, he asked. Jesus, Jesus says with utmost respect, was it your idea to ask that? Or did somebody, other people tell you about me? And then Pilate retorts, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own people and chief of priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom... This is political language to a political person. My kingdom isn't the sort that grows in this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom was from this world, then my supporters would have fought to stop me being handed over to the Judeans. So then, my kingdom is not the sort that comes from here. So, said Pilate, you are a king, are you? You're the one who's calling me a king, replied Jesus. I was born for this. I've come into the world for this, to give evidence about the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So when it says world, my kingdom is not of this world. The word there is cosmos. Okay, he's not talking about this planet. He's not saying my kingdom is not of earth, of the planet earth. He's saying my kingdom is not of this cosmos. And cosmos literally means this arrangement of things. Okay, so that could be a, a geographical place but more likely it's talking about the geography the socio-economic things the religious things the political things it's talking about the, the whole arrangement of life my kingdom does not come from this arrangement it is not from here it will not grow here it will not be a product it will not be embedded in it will not be beholden by it will not be configured by these systems all of your value systems, my kingdom is not of any of those. It is of a different category and class altogether. Jesus says, I have come into, so notice the direction language. It's not from here, but I've come into this system to testify about this other way. And the other way is not beholden to any of these measures. It's not beholden to your power. It will not be subservient to Caesar just because Caesar has many legions. My kingdom doesn't care about your legions. I could have 72 legions of angels. I don't do the legions thing, because that's not impressive to me. That don't impress me much, in the words of Shania Twain. (laughs) And bear in mind always what Steve said. Where you think you're from dictates how you behave. So if you think you're still one foot in either, you'll still obey these systems as well as trying to obey these systems. And what I want to suggest is actually, with no hint of condemnation whatsoever, we're all a little bit... Because we're so immersed in the system. We're so immersed in the system. And unfortunately, we don't have a magic pill that will evacuate us out of this system. But notice Jesus comes into it to testify to the truth. He isn't scared of it. He isn't saying, well, my kingdom's over there. So let's just... just, We'll go away quietly to our bit. Jesus says, I'm coming into the middle of this. And I'll suffer all of this because I'm not afraid of it. My, my kingdom is not shaped or, or changed or beholden to this one. Okay? So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. So let's just look at Matthew 4 and Matthew 3. Okay, again, this has come from the Bible readings that we've been doing. So you should all be familiar with it. Uh, this was something that Beth asked. So again, like what Matt said about the end of Matthew 5, that added time onto my sermon, Steve. <laughs> That's Matt's fault, so this bit's Beth's fault. Um, So it's really funny. So let's start in uh, Matthew 3, uh, just for the sake of chronology. So there's this this phrase that we don't really acknowledge what it means, but verse 2, 
So oh, let's start from verse 1, just because it's a really good place to start. In those days, John the Baptist appeared, as if by magic. He was preaching in the Judean wilderness. Repent, he was saying, the kingdom of heaven is coming. John, you see, is the person spoken of by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of someone shouting in the desert, Prepare the roots for the Lord will take, straighten out his paths. John himself had clothing made from camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the whole area around the Jordan were going off to him. They were being baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. He saw several Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptised by him. And he said, Come on, guys. No, he said, you brood of vipers, which is always <laughs> welcome. Um, he said to them, who warned you to escape from the coming wrath? You'd better prove your repentance by bearing the right sort of fruit. And you needn't start thinking to yourselves, we have Abraham as, my fa- as our father. Let me tell you, God is quite capable of raising up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already taking aim at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. He was working on his kind of people-friendly skills, <laughs> people skills right there. So, but where does John start? He starts with this. Repent, he was saying, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Okay, so that's John the Baptist saying that message and then demonstrating what he thinks that message means. You guys suck. You are so bad. You better start showing that you really care about things. You are rubbish. Welcome, please be baptized. <laughs> and then in chapter four then. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, so this is from verse 12. Uh, he went off to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum, the small town by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This happened so that the words spoken through Isaiah the prophet might come true. So again, notice the parallels that John the Baptist was there because of Isaiah. Jesus is here because of Isaiah. Uh, skipping on uh, over the Isaiah quake because no one reads the Old Testament. Uh, from that time on, Jesus began to make this procl- proclamation. Repent, he would say. The kingdom of heaven is arriving. Plagiarism, that is. That, I, if I was John the Baptist, I'd be really ticked. <laughs> hey, son of God, get your own message. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were fishermen and casting their nets into the sea. Follow me, he says. I will make you fish for people. Straight away they abandoned their nets and followed him. He went on further and saw two of the brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were in the boat, mending their nets, with Zebedee their father. He called them. At once they left their boat and their father and followed him. He went through the whole of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The word about uh, healing every disease and every illness amongst the people. Word about him spread around the whole of Syria, and they brought to him all the people tormented with various kinds of diseases and ailments. Demon-possessed people, epileptics and paralytics. He healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the ten towns, or the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So they both have a similar kind of canvassing area. They both have the same message. Repent. Because the kingdom is here, or the kingdom is arriving, or the kingdom is coming. Mm. How they understand that message is vastly different. Mm. John is really pugnacious in the face of the Pharisees. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't do that later on. But when, when uh, in, in chapter 4, it describes the news, the, na- the, the nature of the news, repent, for the kingdom is coming, as good news. Mm. It's an invitation to follow it involves all this action of healing. It doesn't necessarily uh, involve baptism. 
The word there for repentance that both of them were using is this word metanoia. Um, and so there was a fad about two or three years ago talking about um, this uh, in the Mirror Bible and all of that. But the word metanoia, like we think repent is say sorry. Really earnestly say sorry. Mm. You know, so if you have kids, you might use that occasionally. Say sorry to your little sister for kicking her in the face. When we say repent, though, when Jesus says repent, when John the Baptist says repent, this, this metanoia, so noia is to do with noose, you know, they've got a bit of nouse about them, a bit of thinking. So metanoia is really do a 180 in your thinking. Literally, it means change the, your mind, change the way you think, because the kingdom is arriving. To anticipate this kingdom, to appreciate this kingdom, to receive this kingdom, to be part of this kingdom, you need to change the way you think. You need to change the way you assume the world works. You need to change the way because the kingdom is going to upend all of that. Let me show you. So Jesus says, change the way you think about things. The kingdom is here. Follow me. I'm clearly a local celebrity. But you nobodies, stinking of fish, come with me. I'll give you a career. Okay, and it means something. If you've ever listened to Rob Bell's Dust about what it is to be a disciple, I'll leave you to go uh, YouTube that later. But it's a really big honour that Jesus has given these guys, these nobodies. He didn't go to the local synagogue and say, you are a really sharp teacher of the law. I need a guy like you on my team. He went to the, the Joe Average. And what did he do with this? This power from God. Well, you know, like, maybe I should go heal Herod. Maybe I should do some magic for um, Pilate. That's the way to achieve power. If I, if I wow these guys, I'll have influence. I'll have a stage, I'll have a platform. I'll have endorsements from other celebrities and powerful people. No, who did we bring? Well, the social outcasts, the ones that are marginalised. Yeah, bring me your lepers that no one cares if they die or not. Because they're shut off in their own community. I'll give the gift of God to them. Completely upside down thinking. But the only way you're going to catch what Jesus is doing is if you change your assumptions about how the world works. Jesus evidently doesn't think the same. And so one of the the important things that Jesus is unpicking here is like these ethno-cultural markers. So John the Baptist is saying, look, be better, you Pharisees. Be better. Be better according to all the metrics that we have about Torah observance. You need to be better at that. And Jesus is saying, be a leper, be unclean. Be the prostitute. I will heal you. God is here for you. God isn't here for the really holy. God is is here for the ones who aren't holy. God isn't here for the ones who think they're well. God is here for everybody who knows they're sick. So... I'm glad that uh, Trish teed up Galatians. I've been reading uh, Galatians a lot. I've been reading some epic tomes on uh, Pauline uh, theology and and just kind of trying to get to the the crux of of Galatians. And what happens in Galatia is basically that Paul had been there and he'd set up a church based upon this message of of the grace of of Jesus Christ. And um, subsequent to Paul planting this church... Uh, some Judaizers come, okay, and what they're trying to do is say, well, Christ is the Messiah, 
But, but the, the important thing is, like you have to believe in Jesus, but the important thing is, the framework that we'll take is still from the Torah. So I know that you're in Galatia and you're Gentiles, but to, to, to follow Christ properly, you still need to be circumcised. Because you still need the Jewish cultural markers to validate you. So the, the primary dictation of what the system is here is still going to be the Torah. Okay, and so all you Gentiles, we can't eat with you until you get circumcised. I know that's a really, really high price to pay for a meal. If a restaurant had that as policy, it would go out of business. Can you imagine being the job of the busser at the door? (laughs) Circumcised, can I check? (laughs) Ah, we have this little Millie guillotine. Um, And that's what they were doing. And, And so Peter, when he was eating with the Gentiles, he used to eat with the Gentiles and Barnabas and all those guys they'd, they'd happily eat with the Gentiles because they believed that Jesus was the one that was configuring reconfiguring the, the arrangement of the systems and then all of a sudden guys came from Jerusalem Jesus' brother James and then as soon as they showed up Peter was like oh maybe they're right maybe I shouldn't be eating with these Gentiles until they get circumcised that sounds about right because we know the Torah right that, that's, the, that's the system of values that we need to adhere to and Jesus kind of just proved that Jesus you know, Jesus even said he fulfilled this bit. So, yeah, of course, yeah, circumcision. Sorry, guys, it's going to be rough for you for a few days, but, hey, it's worth it. And Paul said, no. Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, that you would go back under law when you've been given the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ? Everything has changed because of Jesus. The Torah, for sure, is really important because it points to Christ. That's his only value. Because it points to Christ. No other holy book is going to point to him like the Torah does. And Matthew proves that by referencing Isaiah, right? To set everything up. But it doesn't matter. Circumcision, those old value systems have been completely upended by Jesus Christ. And we could um, bring that into the present day. Just because you have a million in the bank. Just because you play football for Manchester City. Just because you are a film star. Just because you are in the higher echelons of Boris Johnson's government. Sorry, Shania Twain again. That does not impress me much because that is not the system of value that we are using anymore. Um, and the whole uh, book of Galatians is just Paul just going on an absolute like rant about this. And it's amazing because when you really see that Paul doesn't have a problem with the law, mm. it's not all of the Jews. It's the fact that people are taking the gift of Christ and saying, well, that's subservient still to the Torah. And he says this in, I mean, there's so many just blazing passages, but this is brilliant. <coughs> so Paul at the end says, As for me, God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Circumcision, you see, is nothing. But then neither is uncircumcision. What matters is the new creation. I have been crucified to this arrangement of things. I've been crucified to the world. The only, it doesn't matter whether you are rich or whether you are poor. Because you see, like my tendency, and it's probably come across, is that I would champion the poor. We've got to be poor. Like wealth is a really bad thing. And you know, Steve's really challenged me on this. Because it doesn't matter. It'd be foolish for us to just like deliberately go and try and encounter poverty in ourselves you know for us to throw away our jobs and our families and our houses and all of this 
Because actually, neither wealth nor poverty matter. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. And we can say that about everything. You know, like we've become so, um, I, I need to be free to express myself. That's one of the assumptions we have, right? I have the freedom to express myself. Do you really? Because that, that just says that that's the misinterpreting what freedom is. You don't have the freedom to express yourself in any given way. Now, I had an argument about this on Facebook. I upset a lot of people, so brace yourself. But then we're talking about women's clothing. And I just said, well, you can say that people are just expressing themselves, but I challenge that norm. If a woman turned up to, another, uh, to their best friend's wedding in a wedding dress and said, I'm expressing myself, is that okay? Is that expression okay? Or, or another example would be um, turning up to a swimming lesson in, in steel plate armour. Just expressing myself. You're going to drown. Just because you have the right to express yourself doesn't mean that you should do or that it's appropriate or that it's correct. <coughs> and so, you know, well, I'm really poor, so Jesus is closer to me. Or I'm really powerful and successful, so Jesus must be closer to me. Doesn't matter. Jesus is close to both of you. Those, those markers, those cultural markers, doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ. So, um, I'll skip over that. Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might know the will of God, or that you might approve what the will of God is. It sounds an awful lot like what repentance is, doesn't it? It sounds an awful lot about like, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Be transformed by the renew of your mind, so you know what God's will is. Almost synonymous, aren't they? And this is the thing. And this is how it works. We need to be transformed. And the word there, and uh, if you've been around Steve for any any amount of time, you'll have heard him preach about uh, metamorphosis. The word there for transformation is metamorphosis. And it literally carries that idea of, you know, like a, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. There is some continuity between the two things, but there is an absolute transcendence in the order of being. And that's what this transformation of the mind is. There is continuity, so I'll still be me when the Holy Spirit is, is awake, as the Holy Spirit is awakening me and leading me into more truth. I'll still be that person, but it will transform the way I live. Remember, where we believe we are from impacts our choices and our way of being. Okay, so with that exhortation, let's just take a quick look at Matthew 4 again. Again, uh, somebody's fault in here, not mine, um, because we've been reading the Bible thing um, again, so we can take all of this off the time of my sermon, Steve. <clears throat> so Matthew 4, 1 to 11 then. This is uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. and Actually, this is a real kind of Stanley Howarouse thing that uh, I've got... Um, Then Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and at the end of it, he was famished. And then the tempter approached him. If you really are God's son, he said, tell these stones to become bread. Which is a quote from Deuteronomy. (coughs) The Bible says, replied Jesus, that it takes more than bread to keep you alive. You actually live on every word that comes out of God's mouth. Then the devil took him off to the holy city and stood him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you really are God's son, throw yourself down. The Bible does say, after all, that God will give his angels command about you and they will carry you in their hands so that you will not hurt your foot against a stone. That's from Psalms. But the Bible also says, replied Jesus, 
you mustn't put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him off again, this time to a very high mountain. There he showed him all of the magnificent kingdoms of the world. I will give the whole lot to you, he said, if you'll fall down and worship me. Get out of it, Satan, replied Jesus. This is the N.T. Wright version <laughs> translation. Get out of it. EastEnders translation. The Bible says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And then the devil left him and the angels came and looked after him. Oh yeah, it's Luke's fault. Luke's fault. Okay, we need to establish blame. That's important at church. <laughs> okay, the question is, would we spot bad theology? Would we spot bad ways of thinking about God? Would you know it if you heard it? Okay, not a condemnation, just a challenge. How, how do you evaluate what goes in your ears? How are you... I could have said anything, but are you trusting me because you know me? Okay, how do you know by theology? Because in this case, Jesus and the devil both are quite adept at the scriptures, right? They both use the Bible as their authority here. Would you know the difference? Because evidently, the way you interpret the Bible actually matters. The way you read the Bible actually matters. It's not just a book that you read to gain brownie points with God or um, to keep up with the, the app so that it doesn't say that you're three days behind so that you get those little stars saying so many perfect weeks hear me in the right way Bible reading isn't for fun you might enjoy it I actually think it's pretty cool Um, but it's meant to change something in us so when we read it we don't just read it like we're reading Dickens or Sherlock Holmes or Tolkien or whoever else I mentioned at the start G.K. Chesterton because there's something about the word of God no matter where we stand on inspiration and all of that, no matter how we think about it, there's something about that word, this word, that's supposed to transform our thinking. It's supposed to lift the veil. It's supposed to give us the red or the blue pill to set us free from the matrix that is all around us. And if we read it carefully, with due attention and due obedience and due faithfulness, we'll read it in increasingly correct ways okay and i want to emphasize that okay it's it's a journey it's a discipleship it is a following after <clears throat> so my observations about how the devil uses the bible and how jesus uses the bible because don't forget the demons knew jesus was lord before the disciples did yeah. so confessing that jesus is lord actually do not the de- demons do that yeah. It's about how we adhere to that, how that changes us, how that forms us. How, Jesus being Lord, how does that shape us? Reading the Bible, what does that do to us? Does that change where we believe we are from sufficiently to change the way we think and make choices? Because when the devil uses it, he uses it from the perspective of obedience and power. Doesn't it say that God will do this for you? So just do it and God will do that thing for you. And we do this, don't we? Sometimes we have those books of promises. Oh, and it promises that I'll be the head and not the tail, yada, yada, yada. In that thinking, where does Jesus come? Does Jesus need to be involved in that thinking at all? I've got my promise. God said he's going to do it. So all I have to do is activate the conditions and the clauses in that promise. And it will happen. You don't need a relationship for that. 
You don't need God for that. You just need his power to do that. Whereas Jesus, he could have said, well, actually, yeah, I'm the son of God. If anybody has any entitlement for that, it is me. So, yeah, let's do this thing. I'm going to jump. And these angels, it's going to be ace. We should get it on YouTube because we'll get like a million likes. (laughs) Now he says, actually, I'm just going to trust that God's going to look after me. Jesus had the right to apply scripture to his life and access the power. But instead he said, no, actually, I'm just going to rest in this relationship. I'm just going to know that God is good and I'm going to rest. Even though we don't see that you're working, you never stop working. I'm just going to rest in this relationship. I'm just going to do my bit. I'm going to be obedient to being a son of God. I'm going I'm to be faithful to this relationship. Even if it takes me to the cross, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to trust the Father to do his bit because this is a relationship. This is me and him in this. <coughs> One is a hermeneutic of power. I'm in this because I want to see how I can succeed. How is this going to make me... Um, blog writer to the stars how is that going to make me a better data analyst how is that going to make me more successful more money more power more influence more healings because that's a good thing right we want more healings how is that going to make this happen for me or it's like jesus i'm in relationship with you i'm going to trust you i'm going to persevere in this walk with you i'm going to be obedient to follow you it is a journey of transformation that's why we're called not to get people saved We're called to make disciples. Okay, because salvation, just say yes. Done, see you later. My work here is done. But it's not, it's to make disciples and to baptise people, immerse people in the Father, isn't it? There is a constant dialogue between our current certainties and our current experience and what we believe about God. That's the journey. Because we all say, God heals. And then we'll come up against things that say to us, are you sure? And it's a constant dialogue. Well, actually, maybe my certainty around how God does these things needs to change because of my experience. Or actually, maybe I need to reevaluate my experience in the light of that. And it's a constant dialogue. Okay, the life that we live and the thing that we see in Jesus. And sometimes we have to change how we see Jesus. Maybe I haven't got him sussed out, actually. Maybe I'm not reading the Bible correctly. Maybe I need a better lens. Maybe I just need to, you know, uh, Steve did the, the illustration with the, the, the tub with the, the mud in it. Maybe I just need to, like, get somebody to help me knock some of this mud away so I can see more clearly. And it's this dialogue. It's this constant flow in the Spirit who, who promises to lead us into all truth. It doesn't promise to deliver all truth to your mind like a download he promises to lead you there because the problem is is we think well actually wouldn't it be easier for God to give us a download and just for us to know just to be enlightened straight away and it's just like yeah but that again where's Jesus in that but if it's a journey if it's a leading then we need that relationship so church I want to just leave you with this challenge that we may not we won't okay we will not be able to recognise all bad theology Good theology does matter. 
Okay, good theology does matter, but we do not have to feel condemned about trying to figure it out and read tomes of books. Okay, and I'm definitely speaking to myself. Because I do not vet the theology for everybody in the world. I'm never going to be the smartest guy on this planet. I'm never going to be the greatest theologian or be able to approve. Oh, yes, well, that's definitely, that's, that's good. Yeah, well done. No, it's all about the relationship with Christ. And that's what leads us into all truth, by being in the Spirit and saying, actually, the way I've evaluated this system is all wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not seeing that quite rightly. Maybe, maybe my career choices have been orientated around these old ways of being. Jesus isn't against you becoming the CEO of whatever company you're with. Jesus isn't about saying, no, you can't be successful. Because success or failure... It all comes under Christ. Neither one matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision. It doesn't matter. What matters is the new creation breaking forth in you. Okay, so church, I want to encourage you. Just keep pressing in with the Spirit. Keep engaging. One of my favourite things that we've been doing is just reading the Bible together. Because it's always a challenge. Because there's stuff that I never spot. Like, I loved it when you said, what does minister mean there? I've never seen that before. You know, we only read the Gospels like the other month, didn't we? So I've never seen that before. Like, how many times have we read through Matthew? Never spied that before. How weird. And it's just that constant dialogue, that constant moving together. Because actually, the other assumption that we have is salvation is individual. Righteousness is individual. My my progress with God is individual. But actually, like, the, the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter, is unrelenting in that it's community based all the letters of the New Testament are written to communities they're not written to I they're written to us and so it's that look, let, let's just keep pressing in to the spirit let's just keep listening and dialoguing and talking and allowing ourselves to be challenged there's no one here in this room or in our community that can say I have nothing to learn from you guys nobody it's always a constant dialogue and a constant journey and a constant discipleship of Christ. Um, and so let me just top up how much time I need to dis- take off that. So probably about 20 minutes, I reckon. Because <laughs> there was Matt and Beth and Luke's fault and then there was the TV quote. Um, okay, so Heavenly Father, please, we pray. Um, we love you. We love your word. Um, we couldn't care less about well we probably could care less about circumcision for the guys in the room Um, we couldn't care less about the the markers, the value systems the configuration of this world we just want to press into Jesus Christ the Christ event that reconfigured everything that supersedes everything, that transcends everything that the Christ would fill all in all and that we being enlightened in our hearts with our brethren could actually possibly conceive of the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of God and that we could be uh, just in Christ more, that we could be conformed more to, to Christ, that we could look more like him, that we could act and behave more like him, because, God, you know that this world needs that. The whole of creation is, is groaning and waiting for the revelation of your children. God, in Jesus' name, amen.